Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 139. This episode is entitled, The Mysterious English Sweating Sickness. From the mobile.abc.net.au website, a story by James Glenday. UB-85, wreckage of German submarine at centre of sea monster mystery, found off Scotland. A German U-boat supposedly said by its captain to have been sunk by a giant sea monster at the end of World War I has been discovered off the west coast of Scotland. UB-85 was found by a team working on laying an underwater power cable between Scotland and England. Officially, UB-85 was sunk by a British warship in 1918. Naval historians believe the submarine was caught on the surface at night and was flooded when it dived too rapidly to avoid detection. The entire crew then had no choice but to surrender. But according to folklore, the captured captain of the submarine claimed the U-boat was attacked and disabled by a giant sea monster. Historian Innes McCartney said the story spread due to the secrecy surrounding wartime submarine operations. He said he was sceptical of the sea monster fable. I like the idea of Nessie doing her bit for the war effort, but I think in reality the real sea monster is the U-boat here trying to sink ships. According to Mr McCartney, the tale was probably told over a few drinks between journalists and former Navy officers. The problem with these stories is that in 1920, the Allies stopped reporting anything about what happened to the German submarines. The records then fell under the 50 years secrecy rule. The exact results of the first U-boat were secret until 1970. So in this 50-year period, there is a lot of vacuum building up, which is just ripe for conspiracies. So we see cases of U-boats being attacked by sea monsters, haunted U-boats, lots of cases like this. Subsea engineer Peter Roper said the discovery came as an enormous surprise. We do really detailed surveys of the seabed, so we can look out for obstacles that might be in the way, 
and we're looking for boulders and things like that, he said. What we didn't expect to find was a German U-boat. It's probably the most amazing thing I've ever come across in the whole of my construction experience. As for UB85, it will stay where it sank to be the subject of further study. And if my voice is sounding a little bit different on this podcast, it's probably because I'm still getting over a doozy of a head cold, which I've had for the last week. So he is hoping for the best and that my voice will last the duration. From the BBC.com website, an article by Helen Briggs. Cave paintings reveal clues to mystery Ice Age beast. The modern European bison, now found only in protected reserves, once roamed widely on the continent. Studies of ancient DNA show the bison arose from interbreeding between the extinct steppe bison and the aurochs about 120,000 years ago. The scientific evidence was confirmed by cave paintings that depict features such as horns and bumps. When we asked, French cave researchers told us that there were indeed two distinct forms of bison art in Ice Age caves. It turns out their ages match those of the different species, said Dr Julien Soubriere from the University of Adelaide. We'd never have guessed the cave artists had helpfully painted pictures of both species for us. Early fossil records have shown that two major forms of bovids, a family of hoofed mammals including cattle, sheep and goats, were present in Europe. The aurochs, the ancestors of modern cattle, and the steppe bison. The University of Adelaide researchers used bones from 64 ancient bison to study the origins of the group. We were surprised to find that the DNA we were getting back from these bones didn't look entirely like the modern European bison. They looked quite different. Lead researcher Professor Alan Cooper, director of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide, told BBC News. We determined that the European bison, bizarrely enough, is a hybrid between an auroch, which is the ancestor of modern cattle, one of the most ferocious wild animals, and a steppe bison which ranged all the way from the grasslands of Russia into Alaska and all the way down to Mexico in the Americas. The findings are a surprise given that genetically cows and bison are quite far apart. Hybrids, or the offspring of two animals of different species, are rare. They break the rules of biology and are usually infertile. The scientists had jokingly nicknamed the hybrid beast the Higgs bison. Like the particle long sought by physicists, they were not sure it existed due to a gap in the fossil record. Finding that a hybridisation event led to a completely new species was a real surprise, as this isn't really meant to happen in mammals, said Professor Cooper. The genetic signals from the ancient bison bones were very odd, but we weren't quite sure a species really existed so we referred to it as the Higgs bison. Radiocarbon dating of the bones revealed that each of the bison had been dominant at different times due to changes in the environment. 
the scientists found the age of the cave paintings matched this flux. The cave paintings came from sites across France and Spain. Paintings from more than 18,000 years ago show creatures with long horns and hefty forequarters, like the American bison, which is descended from the steppe bison. However, more recent paintings, about 12 to 17,000 years old, show animals with shorter horns and smaller humps, similar to the modern European bison. It looks like the cave artists were actually spotting the difference and actually recording them in their art, said Professor Cooper. And so the Higgs bison has been hiding in plain sight for all the time and no one recognised. The variation in cave art was put down to cultural or stylistic differences. The European bison is now largely confined to the Bialowieza forest between Poland and Belarus. The animal was driven to extinction in the wild across Europe about a hundred years ago through hunting and habitat loss. There are now thousands in the wild, all descended from handful of individuals in captivity, reintroduced into the wild. It's impressive enough that our human brains are made up of the same star stuff that forms the universe. But new research suggests that this might not be the only thing the two have in common. Just like the universe, our brains might be programmed to maximise disorder, similar to the principle of entropy, and our consciousness could simply be a side effect. From the sciencealert.com website, an article by Fiona MacDonald. Consciousness could be a side effect of entropy, say researchers. The quest to understand human consciousness, our ability to be aware of ourselves and our surroundings, has been going on for centuries. Although consciousness is a crucial part of being human, researchers still don't truly understand where it comes from and why we have it. But a new study led by researchers from France and Canada puts forward a new possibility. What if consciousness arises naturally as a result of our brains maximising their information content? In other words, what if consciousness is a side effect of our brain moving towards a state of entropy? Entropy is basically the term used to describe the progression of a system from order to disorder. Picture an egg. When it's all perfectly separated into yolk and white, it has low entropy. But when you scramble it, it has high entropy. It's the most disordered it can be. This is what many physicists believe is happening to our universe. After the Big Bang, the universe has gradually been moving from a state of low entropy to high entropy. And because the second law of thermodynamics states that entropy can only increase in a system, it could explain why the arrow of time only ever moves forwards. So researchers decided to apply the same thinking to the connections in our brains and investigate whether they show any patterns in the way they choose to order themselves 
while we're conscious. To figure this out, a team from the University of Toronto and Paris Descartes University used a type of probability theory called statistical mechanics to model the networks of neurons in nine people's brains, including seven who had epilepsy. Specifically, they were looking at synchronization of neurons, whether neurons were oscillating in phase with each other, to figure out whether brain cells were linked or not. They looked at two data sets. First, they compared the connectivity patterns when participants were asleep and awake. And then they looked at the difference when five of the epileptic patients were having seizures and when their brains were in a normal, alert state. In both situations, they saw the same trend. The participants' brains displayed higher entropy when in a fully conscious state. We find a surprisingly simple result. Normal, wakeful states are characterised by the greatest number of possible configurations of interactions between brain networks, representing highest entropy values, the team writes. This led the researchers to argue that consciousness could simply be an emergent property of a system that's trying to maximise information exchange. Before we get too carried away, there are some big limitations to this work, primarily the small sample size. It's hard to spot any conclusive trends from only nine people, particularly as everyone's brains responded slightly differently to the various states. Physicist Peter McClintock from Lancaster University in the UK, who wasn't involved in the research, told Edwin Cartledge over at Physics World that the results were intriguing but needed to be replicated in a larger number of subjects, including experiments during other brain states, such as while patients are under anaesthesia. But the study is a good starting point for further research and hints at a possible new hypothesis for why our brains tend to be conscious. The team now plans to investigate the results further by measuring the thermodynamic state of different regions to understand if what's happening is really the true definition entropy or some other type of organisation. They also want to extend their experiments to general cognitive behaviour, for example, seeing how neural organisation changes when people are concentrating on a task and when they're absent-minded. We're only just beginning to understand how the brain's organisation might affect our consciousness, but it's a pretty fascinating rabbit hole to fall down, and a nice reminder that we're all connected by the laws that govern the universe. NBCnews.com website, an article by Alyssa Newcomb. Could a mysterious, brand new planet be to blame for our tilted sun? A new study released this week said that a distant, undiscovered planet may be responsible for the wobble in our solar system, tilting the planets by as much as six degrees. 
the culprit, the mysterious Planet Nine, said to be lurking deep in the Milky Way. Because Planet Nine is so massive and has an orbit tilted compared to the other planets, the solar system had no choice but to slowly twist out of alignment, said Elizabeth Bailey, lead author of the study announcing the discovery. Here's a look at nine things to know about the mysterious planet. 1. What is Planet Nine? It's mind-blowing to think we might not yet have a complete census of what's really in our solar system. Planet Nine's possible existence was pinpointed through mathematical modelling and computer simulations, but no one has laid eyes on it yet. 2. Where is the hypothetical Planet Nine located? At its farthest point, it may be about 155 billion miles from the Sun, putting it beyond the demoted dwarf planet Pluto. For some perspective, Earth is 93 million miles from the star. Planet Nine is believed to have a gaseous quality, making it similar to Uranus and Neptune. 3. Where did Planet Nine come from? It may have formed near Uranus and Neptune, according to researchers at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, who shared compelling new evidence of Planet Nine's existence earlier this year. It's theorised an encounter with gas giant Jupiter may have ejected Planet Nine to its current place in the boonies of the solar system. Another theory says Planet Nine could be a captured rogue planet from another planetary system being pulled into our solar system by the Sun after it was ejected. 4. It may be tilting our solar system. The reason for the Sun's crooked angle has never been explained. But space nerds have long been enamoured by the idea of Planet Nine and the fact that it could explain some of the other curiosities of the solar system, such as why the Sun appears to be tilted. 5. It's a big deal literally. Planet Nine is estimated to be ten times the size of the Earth, making it about the same size as its nearest neighbour, Neptune. It's also estimated to be 5,000 times the mass of Pluto, which the world got its closest look at yet when New Horizons flew by in July 2015. 6. Planet Nine's existence can explain some other space oddities. Planet Nine appears to orbit 30 degrees off from the existing eight planets, possibly influencing the orbit of objects in the Kuiper Belt, a region of the edge of the solar system containing icy bodies. Two researchers noticed the bizarre orbit of 13 Kuiper Belt objects in a 2014 paper, suggesting they may orbit a planet, prompting more people in the science community to set their sights on the existence of the so-called planet. 7. It has an unusual orbit. It's estimated Planet Nine would take anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 years to orbit the Sun. Its highly elongated orbit is believed to be, on average, 20 times farther from the Sun than its neighbour Neptune. 8. There has only been two true planets discovered since ancient times. If scientists can prove the existence of Planet Nine, it would be a huge achievement. This would be a real ninth planet, said Mike Brown, 
a professor of astronomy at Caltech, which has studied Planet Nine in a statement earlier this year. There have only been two true planets discovered since ancient times, and this would be a third, he said. It's a pretty substantial chunk of our solar system that's still out there to be found, which is pretty exciting. Those two planets, Uranus and Neptune, were discovered in the 18th and 19th centuries, respectively. Pluto would have been the third, but it was demoted to dwarf planet status in 2006. And number nine. Scientists believe we're getting close to getting our first look at Planet Nine. We could be a matter of years away from getting any photographic evidence of the planet, researchers say. One way may be through the Hubble Space Telescope, although it would likely only be able to snap an image measuring a few pixels across. And from the mentalfloss.com, a story by Stacy Conrad. The mysterious English sweating sickness. Cold chills, throbbing head, muscles ache, fatigue, the sweats. If you experience those symptoms today, you'd probably just regret putting off your flu shot this year. But if those things cropped up in 1485, your family would likely start planning your funeral. In the late 1400s and early 1500s, these symptoms almost certainly meant you had fallen victim to the mysterious English sweating sickness, a disease that struck without warning and could kill within hours. From 1485 through 1551, five epidemics of this terrifying disease swept through England and once through Europe, with mortality rates from 30 to 50%. The illness seemed to be prevalent among upper-class males, so the royals and their cohorts were particularly affected. Because of this fact, the sweating sickness may have changed the course of history. In 1502, just six months after his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, Arthur, Prince of Wales, died suddenly at the age of 15. Though an official cause of death wasn't recorded, some historians believe Arthur was another sweating sickness fatality. As the oldest male child in the family, Arthur would have descended to the throne if he hadn't succumbed to the illness. His younger brother Henry, Duke of York, ended up taking the crown instead. You probably know him better as Henry VIII, who married his brother's widow seven years later. She was the first of his six wives, of course. Though it's been difficult for modern-day doctors and scientists to trace the origins of English sweating sickness, there's been educated speculation that it was the result of hantavirus pulmonary syndrome, HPS, which wasn't even recognised until 1993. Spread by certain rodents, HPS has the exact same symptoms and a similar mortality rate. 38%. But even if 16th century doctors were aware that the English sweating sickness was really HPS, there's little they could have done. To this day, there is no cure or vaccine that will stop it. 
the CDC's advice, avoid rodent infestations, which was a lot harder to do in 16th century England. And also from the mentalfloss.com website, a story by Jake Rossum. The BBC Halloween hoax that traumatised viewers. After more than 20,000 phone calls, one induced labour and thousands of angry letters, the UK's Broadcasting Standards Council convened for a hearing. On June 27, 1995, they ruled that the producers of Ghostwatch, a BBC program that aired on Halloween night less than three years earlier, had deliberately set out to cultivate a sense of menace. Put another way, the BBC had been found to be complicit in scaring 11 million people senseless. Airing from North Holt, North London, Ghostwatch alleged to report on the paranormal experiences of the early family, which had been besieged by the actions of a ghostly apparition they called Pipes. Four recognised BBC presenters appeared on the show, which took on the appearance of a straightforward documentary and offered only subtle clues that it was an elaborate hoax. For a significant portion of viewers, it appeared as though they were witnessing documented evidence of a malevolent spirit. Viewers grew so disturbed by the content that the network became embroiled in a controversy over what audience felt was a ruse perpetrated by a trustworthy news source. Cases of post-traumatic stress disorder in children were even reported in the British Medical Journal. What the BBC had intended to be nothing more alarming than an effective horror movie had petrified a country and would eventually lead to accusations that it was responsible for someone's death. There is something of a myth surrounding Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds broadcast on October 30, 1938. As the decades have passed, accounts of how Welles used the H.G. Wells story to fool a nation into believing aliens had invaded have become embellished. Listeners had supposedly become so infused with terror that they leapt from windows and suffered nervous breakdowns. Major cities had streets crowded with people craning their necks and looking for signs of a violent galactic attack. While it's true a number of people may have been disturbed by the accounts of military forces being overwhelmed by aliens, it's unlikely to have been as widespread as later accounts would have it. Newspapers eager to browbeat the competing medium of radio exaggerated the show's effect, then quickly dropped the matter. It's not likely all that many people were even listening in the first place, with the program going up against a popular comedy show airing at the same time. As far as perpetrators of hoaxes go, only Stephen Volk seems to have lived up to the standard Wells is thought to have set. A screenwriter, Volk pitched the BBC on a six-part series in 1988 about a roving paranormal investigation crew that climaxes in a live tour of a supposedly haunted house. The BBC, however, wasn't that enthused about devoting that much time to the idea. Instead, the pitch was condensed down to the last episode, 
a kind of mockumentary take on a paranormal occurrence that the channel could air as a Halloween special. For Volk, it represented an opportunity to explore what he felt was the relative comfort of a television broadcast. Audiences went to horror films, he believed, knowing what to expect, consenting to be scared. But television was more intimate and less predictable. Viewers who tuned in anticipating a spoof or anticlimactic tongue-in-cheek exploration would be in for a surprise, and not a pleasant one. To add to the program's credibility, Volk and director Leslie Manning structured it so two BBC presenters, Sarah Green and Craig Charles, would be installed at the early house while highly regarded broadcaster Michael Parkinson would anchor from a studio. Both Charles and Green frequently popped up on BBC children's programming, which would prove to be a lure when it came to an adolescent audience. Actors portrayed members of the early family. Single mother Pam and daughters Suzanne and Kim all reported instances of strange activity in their home, including rattling, mysterious cat noises and smashed dishes. Suzanne would sport odd scratches on her face, which she claimed to be the work of pipes, the ghosts who refused to leave their home. In a testament to Volk's commitment, he petitioned the BBC to allow him to try and insert a high-pitched warble on the soundtrack that would be audible to animals near televisions, hoping their bizarre behaviour would unsettle viewers more. It proved to be technically impossible to do. Various ideas were battered around to reinforce the disclaimer, but few made it to the air. Mike Smith, Green's real-life husband and an on-air BBC correspondent who appeared on the special, once told the Radio Times that he suspected things might go south. We had a meeting with the BBC days before the transmission, he said, and we told them that this was going to cause a fuss. They told us not to worry because it was being billed as a drama in the Radio Times, complete with a cast list. But we felt that wasn't enough. By the time Ghostwatch premiered at 9.25pm on October 31, 1992, the special had already been filmed, showing Parkinson reacting to segments and taking calls, all staged, that invited the audience to discuss their experiences with paranormal activity. In the interests of fairness, he also conducted an interview with a fake sceptic dismissing the early's claims. Only highly observant viewers would have done the same. While the show began with a title card indicating it was written by Volk, the graphic was on screen for only a split second. The presence of established and familiar faces to BBC viewers added to the verisimilitude. So did the program's slow burn. At 90 minutes, it took its time, showing only fleeting glimpses into the early family's experiences that were left purposely ambiguous. In the show's second half, things took a turn. A viewer called in to tell them that someone had once committed suicide in the home. A mutilated dog corpse was said to be recently found nearby. The early children were depicted as increasingly upset over the home's disturbances. Around an hour in, Parkinson even advised viewers that they'd be preempting scheduled programming to remain with Green due to the extraordinary events taking place. Suzanne, speaking in a baritone voice, 
and unseen cats mewling behind the walls. Ultimately, Green disappeared in the crawl space under the home's stairs, while a paranormal expert proclaimed that the television audience had unwittingly participated in a mass seance that further emboldened Pipes. At the end of the show, Parkinson was seen being apparently possessed by the ghost's spirit. The finale laid it on a little thick, but not everyone made it that far in. By the time Ghostwatch signed off, a not insignificant portion of the show's 11 million viewers were either convinced ghosts were real, extremely upset at the BBC for traumatising their children, or both. The broadcaster had just five operators standing by its phones once the show went off air, a number that was quickly overcome by the thousands of calls that flooded in. One woman reportedly went into labour due to the stress caused by watching the program. Another reported her husband had soiled himself. Within hours, the BBC aired a brief segment that reminded viewers the show was fictional. It was a little too late. Public discourse, including on the BBC's own viewer feedback show, Bite Back, criticised the station for using its reputation to fool viewers into thinking harm had come to both the earlies and to their hosts. Parapsychologist Susan Blackmore later said that it treated the audience unfairly. It can be exciting to play on the edge of fantasy and reality or stretch the accepted norms of television conventions. But this was neither true to its format nor fun. It was horrid to watch the distress of the girls, real or faked. I found it overlong and occasionally disgusting. The lack of adequate warnings was irresponsible. Green quickly appeared on children's television shows to reassure younger viewers she had not been abducted or murdered by pipes. Vulcan Manning offered their own apologies, feeling that the BBC considered them pariahs. They had simply wanted to pay homage to Wells never imagining the program could have the kind of effect that it did. In a report published in the British Medical Journal 18 months later, doctors in Coventry reported cases they classified as post-traumatic stress disorder from consumption of media, in this case, Ghostwatch. Two 10-year-old boys were suffering from panic attacks and sleep disturbances as a result of the broadcast. When the piece appeared, the journal received correspondence from other doctors relating similar cases. If not for his reported learning disabilities, 18-year-old Martin Denman might have been more psychologically equipped to deal with some transient nerves from the show. When he became distraught in the days following the broadcast, he began to grow concerned he might make contact with ghosts and committed suicide. His parents, Percy and April, blamed Ghostwatch, leading to the Broadcasting Standards Council to rule that the show had been improperly labelled, with too few warnings that it was a fictitious premise. Later, the handheld camera, raw footage approach would unnerve cinema audiences that flocked to films like The Blair Witch Project and the Paranormal Activity series. While those films rarely resulted in any claims more serious than motion sickness, Ghostwatch successfully married the BBC's credibility with an effective ghost story to create an experience that's unlikely to ever be duplicated. 
Not that the network wants to try. Since its original airing, the program has never again been broadcast in its entirety in the UK. Crater Lake in Oregon is the deepest lake in the United States and its water is so blue you'd be forgiven for thinking someone slipped a few gallons of food colouring into it. But its sheer size and brilliant blue water aren't the only distinguishing features of Crater Lake. There's a nine metre tall tree stump that's been bobbing vertically in the lake since at least 1896 and it's buoyant enough to support the weight of an entire person standing on top. From the sciencealert.com website, this tree trunk has been floating upright for 120 years and no one knows why. And this is written by Beck Crew. First discovered in 1896 by geologist explorer Joseph Diller, the so-called old man of the lake has been floating upright ever since, standing about 1.2 metres tall above the surface. And it's not just bobbing in the one place. Back in 1902, Diller published the first scientific study on the stump and found that within the first five years of its discovery, it had travelled some 400 metres through Crater Lake. A second experiment run between the 1st of July and the 30th of September 1938 found that it had travelled way further than even that, thanks to high winds and waves. The unsinkable old man had covered at least 99.9 kilometres in just three months. You would think that the four foot above the water would act as a little sail, but sometimes he'll move all the way across the lake against the wind. Mark Butinica, an aquatic ecologist for the National Park in Southern Oregon, told Connor Knight at CBS News. As the man in the image below demonstrates, the exposed end of the stump might be splintered and bleached by the sun, but it's buoyant and wide enough to support an entire person's weight. So, where did this mysterious stump come from? Thought to be a hemlock trunk, the old man of the lake has been floating in Crater Lake in southern Oregon's Crater Lake National Park for at least the past 120 years. But carbon dating suggests that it is at least 450 years old. Crater Lake partly fills an enormous 655 metre deep cauldron-like depression that formed around 7,700 years ago when the Mount Mazama volcano collapsed during a cataclysmic eruption. The lake itself is some 592 metres deep, making it the deepest in the United States and the ninth deepest lake in the world. What's particularly unusual about this lake is how relatively empty it is. According to the US National Park Service, fish are not native to the lake and the species that exist there now were introduced between 1888 and 1941. Six species were originally introduced, but only two have survived, rainbow trout and kokanee salmon. The relative emptiness of Crater Lake is exactly what gives it its incredible colour, 
as the National Park's website explains. Water molecules, just plain water with no sediments, algae, pesticides or pollution, will absorb all the colours of the spectrum except the blues. Those wavelengths will bounce back and make the water appear blue. The key is to have relatively pure water, and lots of it. There has to be enough molecules to absorb all the other colours. There are 4.6 trillion gallons of water in the lake, so it works really well. At a depth of about 120 metres, a particular type of moss from the Fontanalis genus is found to grow, and the only place that this moss is found near the surface is on the old man of the lake. This suggests that the log might have come in contact with deeper waters in the lake over the past 120 years. But how did it come to be upright in the water, and how has it managed to stay like that for so long? Basic physics state that a floating object of uniform density will always have its centre of mass as being higher than its centre of buoyancy. That means a long log will float with its axis in a horizontal orientation and a short log will float vertically. Being 9 metres long with a diameter of about 61 centimetres, the old man of the lake should be floating horizontally. So what's making it orient vertically? No one's been able to come up with a definitive answer yet, but it's been suggested that when it slid into the lake more than a century ago, rocks had become tangled up in its roots. These natural anchor points would have immediately orientated the stump to float vertically. The only problem with this hypothesis is that there are no rocks attached to the log now, and there's no definitive evidence of them ever having been there, so it's extremely difficult to prove. But it's been argued that the submerged end would have become denser and heavier over time as it was soaked through, while the exposed end remained perpetually dry. This apparent equilibrium allows the log to be very stable in the water, the Crater Lake Institute explains. The truth behind the old man of the lake might be obscured forever, but as National Park ecologist Mark Bertenica told CBS, I'm okay with not knowing. Float on, old man. When thinking of the origins of vampire literature in the Western world, Chances are you think of Bram Stoker's Dracula. This shared oeuvre has defined the genre ever since it was published more than a hundred years ago. But years before Stoker was obsessively researching for his book, another vampire story was written in Ireland. Camilla, a novella by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, could be called the original vampire novel of modern Europe. Written in 1871, the novella is a first-person account from Laura, a young English woman who falls prey to a beautiful vampire. In some detail, Laura tells us of a curious incident that brings Carmilla, a stranger, into her home. From the atlasobscura.com A story written by Mariana Zapata The lesbian vampire story that came before Dracula.
At first, she is scared of the newcomer, who looks exactly like a spectre she had seen in a nightmare when she was a child. But these feelings quickly subside and are replaced by an ardent relationship that blossoms with intensity. In the meantime, panic arises as maidens from nearby towns are afflicted by a mysterious illness that causes their deaths. Eventually, Laura herself becomes ill and has recurring nightmares of a giant cat that attacks her at night. As a strange twist of fate, a general who has lost his niece to the illness comes to visit Laura's father. He is now aware of the reality of vampires and is on the hunt for Milaka, as he knew Carmilla. When the two unexpectedly come face to face, a fight ensues and Carmilla, now exposed, flees. After the incident, Laura is taken back and guarded by several people. Meanwhile, her father the general and a vampire hunter find Carmilla's hidden tomb, drive a stake into her heart, decapitate her and burn her remains. Laura recovers her health, but never fully, and continues to be haunted by the memory of Carmilla for the remainder of her short life. Most scholars agree that Carmilla heavily influenced Dracula, as elements of the first appear in the latter, though modified or amplified. The aesthetic of the female vampire, for example, is very much the same in both stories. They have rosy cheeks, big eyes, full lips, and almost irresistible sensuality. There is also the vampire hunter who comes to the rescue and imparts his knowledge of the obscure on the confused victims. Even the narrative frame of Stoker's masterpiece is quite similar to Le Fanu's, first-person accounts from the victims. But what makes Carmilla so endearing are not its similarities to other works of the genre, but its distinct differences. Most notably, the fact that the story is centred around two female characters, whose complicated relationship is coloured by thinly veiled lesbian undertones. The novella was written during the Victorian era, a period known for its strict moral laws and sexual repression. So, no wonder vampire novels rose into prominence. The premise of these novels that even the most pure of hearts cannot resist the supernatural seduction. This idea was extremely attractive for the Victorian upper class, especially women whose desires have always been rigidly restricted. However, powerlessness does not mean redemption or absolution, as these powers are understood to be evil and tied to devilish forces. In almost every vampire story, the women who are preyed upon meet their deaths, unless the men in their lives come to the rescue. As such, the vampire trope simultaneously provided an outlet for repressed sexual desires and a moral lesson on the danger of succumbing to such desires. In this sense, Laura is the perfect victim of vampire literature. She is at once repulsed and drawn to the vampire, both wishes to succumb to and withdraw from her feelings for the strange and beautiful creature. And the fact that the beautiful creature is an irresistibly lovely woman only makes her feelings more confusing. I experienced a strange, tumultuous excitement that was pleasurable ever and anon, mingled with a vague sense of fear and disgust. 
I was conscious of a love growing into adoration and also of abhorrence. Laura isn't alone in her feelings. We are given to understand that most of her victims are of no importance to her. Camilla is genuinely enamoured of a few of them. She seems to have fallen for her victim. With gloating eyes, she drew me to her, and her hot lips travelled along my cheek in kisses, and she would whisper, almost in sobs, You are mine. You shall be mine. You and I are one forever. In these moments of frenzied rapture, she implies that for them to become one, Laura must die. To drink Laura's blood was to become one with her forever. As it stands, Carmilla is the antithesis of the heteronormative and male-centred world to which vampires were constricted to after Dracula. It has inspired several remakes, as well as a plethora of lesbian vampire tales, including a Canadian web series of the same name. Given the historical context, it is not surprising that the novella did not gain much attention when it was initially written. Now that it's been 145 years, it is time for Camilla to rise from the grave. From the TravelToThe.com website, 10 Incredibly Creepy Mysteries from India. India is among the most mysterious countries in the world. Its rich mythology, vast size and many cultural peculiarities make it fertile ground for many strange tales and legends. Some of them are clearly fabricated, others just strange enough that they just might be true, and others still are so strange that they could change our entire perception of the world. Number 10. The Village of Twins. The distant village of Kudini, Kerala, has a secret. Not a particularly hidden secret, mind you. It's actually pretty hard to miss. The village's claim to fame is the abnormal amount of twins born there. Kudini has only around 2,000 families, yet there are 250 sets of twins officially registered there. In fact, there could be many more. Experts estimate there could be as many as 350 sets of twins in the area. It gets stranger. It is estimated that the number of twins born in the village is increasing every year, and no one really knows why. This is all the more remarkable because twins are especially rare in India. On average, four out of every 1,000 Indian births are twins. In Kodinhi, the number is 45 per 1,000 births. The doctors have absolutely no idea what is causing this strange phenomenon. They assume there must be some unknown hereditary factor at work, or maybe it's something they eat. 
until they find out for sure the village of twins remains one of the strangest curiosities of perhaps the most mysterious country in the world. 9. The Jodhpur Boom On December 18, 2012, a sudden deafening boom startled the people of Jodhpur. It seemed to come out of nowhere, crashing in the sky like the sonic boom caused by an airplane breaking the speed of sound. However, it was more aggressive in nature, sounding a lot like a massive explosion. The citizens were concerned about the sound and asked around about it, but it soon turned out that no planes had been flying over the area and no explosions had taken place. The source of the Jodhpur boom was a complete mystery. The weirdest part is that it appears that the entire month was littered with strange, unexplained booms all over the world from the United Kingdom to Texas. These bangs were witnessed over the course of several weeks and sometimes they were accompanied with strange green light. In one of the locations a geologist even stated that the booms and subsequent tremors were unlike anything he had ever encountered and didn't fit the official explanation that the Air Force were testing a new plane. Were these strange sounds all over the world connected somehow? Was it some strange new weapon, or an alien attack, or maybe a mere coincidence? Perhaps one day we'll find out. Number 8. The Nine Unknown Men The Nine Unknown Men are to India what the Illuminati is to the Western world, but even more pervasive and mysterious. According to legend, this secret powerful society was founded by Emperor Asoka in 273 BC after a bloody battle that took the lives of 100,000 men. The function of the nine unknown men was to preserve and develop the sort of secret information that would be too dangerous in the hands of the uninitiated. Each of the nine were tasked with holding a special book of knowledge ranging from propaganda to microbiology. Some of them are even said to hold the secrets of anti-gravity and time travel. Occasionally some of this precious information leaks out into the world. For instance, it is said that the martial art of Juto was based on leaks from the Book of Physiology. The number of the unknown men is always nine and their undisguised contacts with the outside world are few and far between. Much like the Illuminati, there are many rumours about their current and past members. Strangely enough, not all of them are Indian. The unknown men are apparently spread all over the world, with some of them allegedly holding very prominent positions. Among suspected members of the Nine Unknown are the influential 10th century Pope Sylvester II and Vikram Sarabhai, the scientist who created India's budding space program. Number 7. The Great Taj Mahal Conspiracy Taj Mahal is without question the most famous and possibly the most beautiful building in India. Considered one of the modern wonders of the world, this ornate white marble building was created by Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan as a mausoleum to his deceased wife. Or was it? 
According to some theories, Taj Mahal was never the architectural embodiment of eternal love history remembers it as. Instead, some evidence suggests that the building is actually about 300 years older than its supposed builder. New Delhi professor P.N. Oak, the man behind this theory, claims that the building was originally not a mausoleum at all. He suggests it is actually an ancient Hindu temple known as Tejo Mahalia, dedicated to the worship of the god Shiva. If true, this turns the entire history of Taj Mahal on its head. Instead of building one of the world's most precious constructions, Shah Jahan would have merely taken an existing temple, slapped on some decorations and dedicated it to his wife. While this may seem far-fetched to those of us who like Taj Mahal as it is, it's worth noticing that Indian royalty have a history of capturing enemy temples and mansions and repurposing them into tombs for their loved ones. What's more, the memoirs of travellers in the area during the time of Taj Mahal's supposed construction make no mention of its building, and even note that the Taj already existed as an important established building. Is Taj Mahal as the ultimate display of romance just a giant lie created by shoddy historians and propagandists? Until the Indian government agrees to open the sealed rooms within the building so they can be thoroughly investigated by experts, the mystery remains. 6. The Cursed Village of Kaldara For over 500 years, the village of Kaldara was populated by about 1,500 residents. One night, they all disappeared. They didn't die or get abducted or anything, they just left. The reason for their sudden evacuation is lost in time. Some say they fled the taxation of oppressive rulers, while others weave a tale of young lovers and the girl's angry father who was the big shot at the village. Whatever the actual case of desertion, one thing is generally agreed upon. When the villagers left, they cursed the area so that no one may live there ever again. Of course, some people tried to take over the cosy abandoned village. According to legend, all who tried died a brutal death. Some of the people who have died in there are said to still haunt the village, according to paranormal investigators who have experienced some very strange events in the place. Whether all of this is true or not, the village has certainly gained a frightening reputation. It remains deserted to this very day, and no one has even considered repopulating it for a long time. 5. The Magnetic Hill of Ladakh In the region of Ladakh near the Himalayas, there is a very strange hill that is said to be magnetic. If you park your car on the road that leads to the top of the hill and leave it in neutral, it will roll up the steep road by its own accord moving at speeds of up to 20 kilometres per hour. This wonderful natural, or as some travel guides will tell you, supernatural phenomenon, is called a Himalayan wonder, and is a popular attraction for travellers in the area. The real truth behind the magnetic hill of Ladakh is pretty impressive, but sadly not quite as mysterious. It's actually just an optical illusion created by the peculiar geography of the area. 
The mountains, road and hill are aligned in a very specific way that makes the area seem a steep uphill terrain, but the road actually goes slightly downhill. Thus the car left out of gear in a certain point of the road will appear to roll uphill. 4. The Immortal Beings of the Himalayas In many mythologies, mountains are natural homes to divine and immortal beings. As such, it's no surprise that the world's mightiest mountain range, the Himalayas, is subject to whisperings of mysterious beings hidden away in the valleys of the mountains. One popular legend among the practitioners of various New Age soul-searching methods is Gyanganj. It is said to be an ancient Indian and Tibetan tale of a city kingdom of mysterious immortal beings that are hiding from the world but influencing it in various subtle ways when needed. It is said that Gyanjan is cunningly camouflaged and even existing in a completely different plane of reality, which is why it has managed to avoid being discovered by modern mapping techniques and satellites. However, the immortal, enlightened Satus and Mahatmas that inhabit it are all too happy to let in a visitor every now and then, perhaps even sharing some of their wisdom with them. Many influential gurus and mystics have claimed the source of their knowledge of the arcane comes from visits to this mysterious place. Number three, the Boot Billy. The Boot Billy or Ghost Cat is a mysterious monster that is terrorizing certain parts of India, particularly in the area of Pune. A strange cryptid that appears to be a cross between a cat and a dog and a mongoose, it is responsible for killing livestock and frightening the locals. According to one eyewitness, the creature is fat and broad with a long tail, black in colour, has a face like a dog and a back like a mongoose. It is capable of long jumps, having at least once jumped into a tree to escape people who have tried to catch it. Despite this, it is said to be quite large and ferocious. Its size is described as smaller than a lion, but bigger than a hyena. Although there are many sightings of the beast, and the locals seem certain that the monster haunting them is a creepy cryptid, it is worth noting that India has a history of overreacting to strange animal sightings. As such, some experts have expressed an opinion that the bootbilly is actually nothing more than a little civet cat and a lot of imagination. 2. The Conquer La Paz UFO Base The Conquer La Paz in the dark area is one of the least accessible places in the world. Not only is it located in the Himalayas, it is a disputed border area of India and China and has been the cause of armed conflict between the two countries in the past. As such, the area is more or less a no-man's land. Both countries keep an eye of it, but neither patrols it or occupies it. Perhaps this is why, according to some, the UFOs have chosen the area as their underground base. Reportedly, the Conquer La Paz holds a series of massive, hidden, underground constructs that UFOs, particularly those of the flying saucer type, use as their base of operations. Many travellers and residents of nearby areas have claimed that UFOs are a common sight in the area, 
rising from their underground lairs and descending back once they've done whatever it is UFOs go out to do. People say both Chinese and Indian governments are very aware of what's going on and may even be cooperating with the extraterrestrials said to pilot the mysterious airships. Indeed, Google Earth has revealed that some supposed underground entrances have what look a lot like military facilities built around them. And number one, Shanti Dev. Shanti Dev was born in a Happy Delhi family in the 1930s. However, she didn't stay happy for very long. When she was four years old, she started insisting that her mother and father were not her true parents. She claimed that her name was actually Ludgi and her true family lived in a completely different city. She claimed she had died giving birth to a child and gave very specific information on her husband and family life. Shanti's worried parents set out to find if there was any meaning behind their daughter's outlandish claims, and what they found out was truly unnerving. A young woman named Ludgi Devi had indeed died in childbirth at the time and in the town Shanti had specified, and the family and relatives she had described very much existed. When she eventually met her husband from previous life, she recognised him instantly and acted like a mother towards his child. The newspapers soon became interested and authorities as revered as Mahatma Gandhi were soon keenly watching Shanti's case. It turned out she was not only able to remember her past lives, but could also remember the time in between lives, that is, the afterlife. She claimed to have met Lord Krishna during these layovers between her lives. The Lord tasked her with spreading the story of her experiences, which is why she is able to remember. Shanti Devi went on to be a scholar, teacher and student of religion. For over 60 years she embraced all major and quite a few minor religions teachings, trying to determine the universal truth behind them all, which was presumably the great mission she was given. Hundreds of researchers and scientists put her claims of reincarnation memories to the test, but no one was able to ever prove her a fake. The bandwidth for today's podcast was provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, which is origins.info. And of course, Origins is spelt O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. Our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to these people who have given a donation to the podcast to help with its production, ongoing costs, new equipment and all that sort of stuff that's involved in keeping this show afloat. So it's a big thank you to these people. Thank you to Luke Hewson, Cheryl Hewton, Sean Yarnell, Richard Benitez, Matt Huttington, Nate Peterson, Tracy Armogan and to Brendan Goff. And thank you to you, Brendan, because you've become the latest in our subscribers. Some of you may not realise, but you can become a subscriber to the podcast through the PayPal link, and it is just done as a monthly deduction. 
Anyway, if you'd like to help out the podcast in any way you can, there is a link at the show notes at origins.info. Click on the PayPal button, it will take you to a website. If you have a PayPal account, you can use the link there. If you don't, just look a little bit further down and you will see a link where you can use your credit card instead. Anyway, if you're able to help out, that's great. If you can't, that's fine, of course. Anyway, my head cold is starting to take its toll on my reading ability, so I'm just going to do one short paranormal story from the paranormal.about.com website. So, from the paranormal.about.com website, a story by Sherry L. Time Slip on the Road in Saskatchewan I had an experience that took place in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada in the summer of 1986. It was the beginning of August and one of the most beautiful summers of my memory. Each day was idyllic, hot but not killer hot and lush, which is not typical for our hot, dry prairies. The lushness was due to beautiful thunderstorms occurring almost every evening, which cooled the heat of the day and invigorated the night with a magic aliveness. I could feel the storm approach by the way hairs on my arms would rise and the perfumed summer air would begin to have a hint of ozone. The storms were spectacular, but not dangerous, and this too is atypical for this land of extremes. My boyfriend Michael was an American whom I met when he came to Canada to reacquaint with his son from a previous marriage. He was unable to stay in Canada and get a working visa, so he had to go back to the US. Naturally, I was heartbroken. He decided to return to Minneapolis and continue to pursue a working visa from there. I decided I would take a month's vacation, drive him to Minneapolis and help get him settled. From Saskatoon we planned to drive to Regina, Saskatchewan, which is 250 kilometres away. Refuel, have a stretch, then head to Plentywood, Montana border crossing to the USA, stop for the night, then head to Minneapolis. Michael and I were both exhausted from months of fighting the deportation order and depressed because he lost his case. It hit Michael hardest, having to leave both his son and me. The stress gave Michael a nasty case of walking pneumonia, so as I drove, he slept. I distinctly remember checking the time before we left, because I was bugged it was already 4pm, and we were leaving later than I had intended. It meant at some point I'd be driving in the dark, which I seriously dislike. As usual, I had the radio on and distinctly heard the DJ confirm the time during his hourly news break. I remember making a quick mental calculation that we should reach Regina between 6 and 6.30pm and that I'd have light until around 10pm. I believe we were only 30 or so miles out of Saskatoon on the Trans-Canada No. 1 highway when things started feeling odd. My physical experience in the car changed. Everything quieted or became sort of muted. Even the radio, like being wrapped in a wad of cotton. I looked over at Michael to comment, but he was sound asleep. Then I realised the road noises and bumps one experiences when driving 
had disappeared. The car felt as if it were hovering a few inches above the road, and it was as if we were hovercrafting through the air. I saw no other cars on this very busy highway, which was also very odd. I distinctly remember feeling everything felt syrupy. The closest thing I can compare it to was when I used to lane swim a mile and be so exhausted I wanted to quit, but I'd force myself until I'd break through it, going into a state referred to by long-distance runners as a runner's high. It's a whooshy, slow-motion sort of feeling where everything seems to slow down or fade except for the motion of movement. When we reached Regina, I went to refuel and told the attendant to fill her up. My first shock was when he gave me a strange look and said, that'll be three bucks. Had we barely used any gas at all after travelling 160 miles? My second shock was when I asked the pump attendant for the time. He said it was 5pm. Even though I already knew the answer, I still felt compelled to ask the attendant if Regina was on the same central standard time system as Saskatoon. The poor kid looked at me like I was the dumbest, craziest blonde he'd ever seen. They are in the same time zone. By this time Mike had awakened and he too was as dumbfounded by the events. It is physically impossible to travel 160 miles in one hour. Even if I had been speeding, which my speedometer said I wasn't, and my 1979 Ford Mustang too was incapable of doing in one hour. And if by some miracle I had been, I would have burned up at least an entire tank. I knew something weird had been going on when we were travelling. It was a weird and a physical feeling. Well, everyone, that concludes episode 139 of the Mysteries Abound podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And until next time, I hope you're all feeling a little better than I am. Keep well and keep safe. Bye for now, everyone. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.